And we will be discussing Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, uh, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. I'll give you a moment to turn there. And, and as you get there, um, if you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's Word. And once again, it's Matthew 5, starting in verse 1, verses 1 through 12. So hear the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. It's good to see you all. Uh, my name is Pastor Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to welcome you and just say thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if you're a guest here, uh, we want to say thank you for making us a part of your week, and, and hopefully... Uh, you have chatted with someone and, and learned a little bit more about who we are as a church. It's our desire that you'd find a home here with us if you don't have a home church. So uh, the best way that you could probably figure out how to do that would be to go to our Connect booth, get plugged into one of our home groups, and get to know really who we are. Um, you can fill out a Connect card as well, and that could be really helpful for us just to get to know you a little bit and also to pray uh, for you and with you. Um, and, we, and we just think our aim here is to make disciples uh, that love God and love people. That's really what we're, we're aiming to make the gospel ignorable in our city by making disciples uh, that love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and love their neighbor as themselves. So that's really what we're after. Um, in the spring of this year, like Eric said, we're gonna be studying ser the Sermon on the Mount. And so I'm pretty excited for that. Um, it is uh, one of, if not the most famous sermon uh, that Jesus ever preached it's often quoted. Uh, some of the quotations that come from the Sermon on the Mount, you've probably heard in popular culture. It's, it has made its way into our everyday vernacular. Things like this, uh, treat others as you would want to be treated. Uh, that's actually Jesus' words. Like Benjamin Franklin didn't make that up or anything. Like that was Jesus. Or uh, when something happens to you and you may share it with a loved one or you know, someone hurt my feelings, someone hurt me. Or Well, you just need to turn the other cheek. You ever heard that? That's Jesus. That wasn't your mom's wisdom. All right, uh, that was Jesus. So a lot of the, the, the sayings and the thoughts that come from the Sermon on the Mount have actually woven their way into uh, a lot of our popular culture and, and common wisdom. Um, but the Sermon on the Mount really is a, is a sermon about the kingdom of God and Jesus giving us a snapshot of what the citizens of the kingdom should look like. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray for us as, before we jump into the word. Uh, this morning, my goal is not to go through the Beatitudes. Next week, I'm going to start walking through the Beatitudes. Uh, but this morning, what I want to do is kind of lay a groundwork before we jump off into the Sermon on the Mount. I think the first two verses, and really maybe uh, some of the chapters before chapter 5, 
give us an inclination that we need to start somewhere. There's a starting line for the Sermon on the Mount that comes before blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And so I want to start there, kind of get our hearts prepped for that before we just jump off in. Uh, but I think I need to admit and be froward about this. The work that needs to be done on our hearts before we hop in is not something that I can do by being winsome or funny or intelligent. So let's pray and ask God to do the work in us and help us so that we can actually approach the Sermon on the Mount and not do one of two things. Either A, I don't want us to reject it because it seems too tough, because I will say that the Sermon on the Mount can be pretty froward at times. But I also don't want us to just say, oh, you're, if you're a list person in the room, you're probably going to go through the Sermon on the Mount and be like, great, uh, I got a list of now things I need to do. Jesus is listing them out for me. I got this, you know, and you're going to put them up on your fridge. And that's not the way that we need to approach the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so let's pray, ask the Holy Spirit to help us, and then we'll just jump off in, okay? Father, we're, we're grateful for your word. We are um, we're humbled by the truth that you give us so graciously. May these words in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Holy Spirit, we long to approach it with humility. As disciples that look to hear your word authoritatively, God, we reject the notion that we could buffet your word, that we could pick portions of it that we like, we could ignore other portions that we don't like. God, help us to just, help us to reject that every day, that temptation. And this morning, it's our prayer that you would stir our affections, challenge our inclinations, bring us into fuller submission to the truth of your word, Lord Jesus. You are a glorious Savior, but you are also a holy and righteous king, and so we submit ourselves to you, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So like I said, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's depiction of the kingdom, or as I think it's Sinclair Ferguson that called it the king's manifesto, which a manifesto was this uh, message that a king oftentimes would give to his subjects at the beginning of his rule or reign. When there would be a changing of the guard and leadership, kings would stand up and they would give their manifestos as to what the kingdom is gonna look like under my reign. And Sinclair Ferguson says that that's what Jesus is doing here, that he's standing up and he's giving to his disciples, this is what the kingdom will look like underneath my reign as the Lord and King of God's kingdom, that he's given me this authority and therefore I'm gonna give you, my citizens, my disciples, my friends, uh, I'm going to give you a snapshot into what your identity will be and what, you will look, what it will look like to live in my kingdom. And the kingdom of God is not a new thing with Jesus. Like Jesus didn't all of a sudden come up with this idea of the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is something that Old Testament prophecies have been giving promises and depictions of the kingdom for many, many years. Like some of you may have read in your Bible reading plans that there's these prophecies in Isaiah and some of the major and minor prophets. They'll say things like this. Uh, all war is going to cease in the kingdom of God. And so everybody is going to look at their swords where they used to have to defend the kingdom and they're going to beat their swords into plowshares or pruning hooks because there will be no more war in the kingdom of God because God will make peace on every side and your sword will be as worthless as anything else uh, that you rarely use so you're going to have to reform it into something that you actually would use. So everybody takes their sword that they would actually kill someone with, they turn it into a plow or a, you know, a tool to farm with because you don't have to worry about uh, there's peace on all sides. You don't have to worry about enemies. The book of Revelation even depicts the kingdom. Some of you will remember this. It says, uh, I'm going to wipe every tear from every eye. Uh, there will be no more death and suffering. 
Every injustice is going to be made right. Every evil is going to be eradicated forever and ever. The very presence of it is going to be gone. This idea of the kingdom is a huge, major theme in the biblical narrative. The kingdom of God's always juxtaposed against the kingdoms of the world from the very beginning. So you have like uh, the kingdom of Egypt. You guys remember that story, right? Moses redeems the children of Israel out of the kingdom of Egypt, and he shows his glorious power over Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and brings the children of Israel into the promised land. That's this, this, uh, this, this power struggle, which is really no struggle with God, right? Where God exerts his power and his authority so that the whole world, this is a quote from God, the whole world would see and know my glory. Okay, you, get, you go forward, you see the same things with the king of Babylon or the kings of Assyria. That God actually, like a, um, he, he uses the example in the Proverbs, that like a stream in the hand uh, of a, or the king's heart is like a stream in my hand that I turn it wherever it will go. So you have with Babylon or Assyria, they're used in one moment uh, as, as systems of judgment against the children of Israel, and then a couple hundred years later, actually 70 years later for Babylon, God actually judges Babylon to show his might and power over them for the kingdom of God to be exerted on the earth. Um, and what we have here in the book of Matthew, uh, many commentators say Matthew uses his book or his gospel to portray Jesus as a king. He wants everyone who reads this book to know Jesus is the king in the line of David. Here's a few reasons why, and I want to roll through these quickly. In chapter number one, have you ever noticed the genealogy that Matthew gives is different than Luke's? So Luke starts with Jesus, and then he kind of backtracks all the way to Adam. He goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and says that Adam was the son of God, because Luke wants you to know Jesus is the son of God. Matthew does it completely differently. He starts with King David, and he goes down all the way to Jesus. Why? Matthew wants you to know Jesus is the true and right king. So he starts with the genealogy with David. Then Matthew goes on and says, and Jesus was born in a town, and this town was called Bethlehem. Matthew actually uses the prophecy of the Old Testament for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. Why would he do that? Because Bethlehem was the city of kings, and he wants you to know that Jesus is the true and right king. Well, then Matthew goes on. And he talks about a story with a man named King Herod. Do you ever notice that, that Luke never mentions King Herod in the story of Jesus' birth? Luke mentions Caesar Augustus. Luke mentions Quirinius. Luke mentions the shepherds in the field. But Matthew mentions a guy named King Herod who wanted to kill all of, the, all of the children that were two years old and younger because he was hoping to catch Jesus in that net and kill Jesus because he was afraid that Jesus was a king who had been born to take over his kingdom. Why would Matthew do that? He wants you to know that Jesus is the true and right king. So Jesus thwarts Herod's plans, and then it moves on. What is the first thing that Matthew tells us about Jesus' ministry? Well, it says after his baptism that Jesus is filled with the Spirit, and he is led out into the wilderness. Do you guys remember the story? And there's a story in Matthew where Jesus is confronted after 40 days of not eating and fasting. He's confronted in temptation, catch this, by Satan himself. That's a rough day. Can we all agree? Have you ever been felt tempted by something? I promise you, most likely, by and large, you've never been confronted by Satan himself. This is a tough moment for Jesus. He has a standoff with Satan in the wilderness. And Satan begins three times consistently to tempt Jesus with dishonoring God and basically falling away from the kingdom purposes. But the third temptation is really critical. What does Satan do? You guys remember the temptations, right? What's the first one? He, he says, eat bread. Turn these stones into bread. I know you're hungry. All right? 
Jesus says, no, I have, you know, man does not live by bread alone, right? I'm not going to do that. Then what does he do? He takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, throw yourself down, because the word of God says that he will command his angels concerning you. God will catch you. The Father will catch you. You know he will never let you die. Just jump down and show everybody who you really are. Jesus says, no. The third one is really critical, though, because what happens is Satan takes him and pulls him out from the entire world, sets and look, he says, look at all the kingdoms of the world, and Satan says, I'll give them all to you. All of the kingdoms of the world, I'll give them under your authority if you'll do one thing, bow to me. What's Satan really doing? He's offering Jesus what the entire Bible has given as a humongous narrative of kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness. He's saying, I'll give you all the kingdom of darkness if you'll just give up the kingdom of light. If you'll give up the cross, which you don't really want to go to anyway, that's tough. You don't even have to go through that. I'll give you everything, all the authority here. But here's what you have to do. You have to give up this whole vision of the kingdom of God coming to earth. And Jesus refuses. Okay, boom. As soon as Jesus refuses, it goes on to chapter number four. And what does chapter four begin to teach us? Well, chapter number four has three major points. Number one, Jesus begins his ministry. What is his message? Repent for the kingdom of what is at hand? Kingdom of heaven's at hand. Kingdom of God's at hand. That's Jesus' gospel message. And then it says two major stanzas after that. One, you have Jesus calls his first disciples. Two, Jesus heals a ton of people, and there's this great, huge crowd that begins to follow him. This is so key to starting the Sermon on the Mount. Because he's, Matthew has meticulously laid out, Jesus is the true and right king. Jesus is the true and right king. Jesus is the true and right king. He was even willing to withstand the prince of darkness and the greatest temptation that we could ever face. And then he calls his first disciples, or his first citizens of his kingdom, into his fold to follow him. And then it says there's these thousands of people. Chapter number four ends by saying that his fame had spread throughout that all of these people were coming to him to hear the words that are coming out of his mouth. It's a huge crowd that's following Jesus. And the reason they're following Jesus is because some of the things that are happening are crazy, right? Diseases are being healed. Pains are being healed. Demons are coming out of, uh, out of demon-possessed people. Jesus is just doing some miraculous stuff. And so the Sermon on the Mount starts this way. Jesus, we'll start in just verse one. Let's just read it. Verse number one, chapter five, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Two groups of people, right? You guys follow me on this? There's two groups of people. Seeing the crowds, thousands of people all around, he goes up on the mountain, he sits down, and his disciples come to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, now let's pause, because we're going to camp out here for all morning. Who does he teach? The crowds or the disciples? Well, there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of disagreement about this, but I think the most convincing argument that I've heard is from commentators like Matthew Henry. But basically, he says something like this. Jesus teaches the disciples, and he knows the crowds are there. He's mindful of them. But he's primarily teaching the disciples. That's why it says the disciples come to him. They kneel down at his feet as an act of submission and surrender, so picture Jesus sitting up on a mount, and they're all beneath him, but you have all the crowds that are kind of in the distance, right? They're kind of all listening in. They're hearing what this guy has to say, but they kind of have a skeptical vision of what this guy is. Matthew Henry gives insight into this. He says Jesus addresses the disciples with the message, but they're the ones who are longing to learn. They're the ones who are longing to be taught. Whereas the crowds, and we know this because of the Gospels, they can be fickle. And many are just longing to witness or experience another miracle. 
Have you guys read the Gospels and you kind of get that feel from the crowds? Like the crowds are kind of there one day and gone the next, depending upon what crazy, amazing thing that Jesus does. If he feeds the 5,000, there's lots of people there. When Jesus says weird things like, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood in order to be my disciple, they're gone. Just uninterested in that message, okay? And so Matthew Henry says, listen, he's addressing the disciples, but he knows they're there. This is what he quotes when he says that Jesus doesn't despise the crowds. I think this is important. Jesus doesn't despise the crowds. Should be a quote behind me by Matthew Henry. Here's what he says. And it's kind of old English, so forgive it. I'll, I'll try to do my best. No, he had an eye to the multitude in preaching this sermon. When the fame of his miracles had brought a vast crowd together, he took the opportunity of so great a confluence of people to instruct them. Note, it is an encouragement to a faithful minister to cast the net of the gospel where there are a great many fishes in hope that some will be caught. The sight of a multitude puts life into a preacher which yet must arise from a desire of their profit and not his own praise, close quote. So Matthew Henry's encouraging pastors, and they says, listen, when you see more people, that shouldn't give you discouragement. It should encourage you. I can preach the gospel to more people. He said, but don't get too haughty because the fear and the warning from Matthew Henry is that you might think they're there for you and they're really there for Jesus. I like that. Okay, but wait. So Jesus is casting his net wide here. But what I love that Matthew Henry does is he points us back to uh, the story of the children of Israel in the wilderness, and he makes this analogy between what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount and what happened on Mount Sinai. And he doesn't really try to press the analogy too much, although I think we could spend six weeks talking about Moses receiving the law from God on Sinai and Jesus standing on the Sermon on the Mount and giving his new manifesto of what the kingdom would look like, which really isn't new at all. It's actually the truth of the law in the first place. But that's not what Matthew Henry is getting at here. Watch what he says. Quote, but though the discourse was directed to the disciples, it was in the hearing of the multitude. For it is said, the people were astonished. He's quoting Matthew 7. At the end of the sermon, the people, the crowds, are freaked out by how authoritative Jesus talks. Now watch this. No bounds were set about this mountain to keep the people off, as were set about Mount Sinai. And he quotes Exodus chapter 19, verse 12, where God says, don't let anybody touch the mountain. He says, for through Christ, we have access to God, not only to speak to him, but to hear from him, close quote. That's huge. He says, Jesus doesn't despise the crowds, and it's a purposeful, intentional move from Jesus because he is saying, my kingdom is going to swing wide the gates to God's presence. In my kingdom, I have the disciples, but it's not going to be exclusive to these people who are just skeptical and unsure about me right now. Both groups of people are extremely important here, and I think it reflects the heart of the Father that Jesus is trying to make sure that everyone's going to hear so that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be brought into the kingdom. Now, here's what I want to say before we step forward. I think that in the Sermon on the Mount, it is so important to decide whether or not you were a disciple listening to the Sermon on the Mount or if you're a part of the crowd. And here's the thing. If you're in this room and you're a part of the crowd, I want to say everyone starts as a part of the crowd. Let's not get haughty. Is there any of us who didn't start as a part of the crowd, not really sure about who Jesus was, just kind of trying to hear and make our mind up? So Jesus doesn't despise the crowd, but I think what he does here is he's giving them an opportunity and also simultaneously he's giving a warning you see the distinction here between the crowds and the disciples it sets the standard for the whole sermon on the mount itself how do we hear the sermon on the mount 
Have you ever read the Gospels and you've heard Jesus say things like this? Be careful how you hear. Be careful how you hear. Be careful how you hear. Because Jesus is basically giving us this warning. There's a way in which to hear the words of Jesus and pick and choose which ones we like. Or we can truly be disciples and say, whatever comes out of your mouth are the words of eternal life. We have nowhere else to go. That's what Peter said when all the crowds left. You guys remember that? All the crowds walk away. Jesus turns to the 12 and says, will you leave too? And Peter says, where else would we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. That's the words of a disciple. The crowds hear in such a way that when the Jesus says things that resonate with their own inclinations, they're good for it. When Jesus says things that don't, they're, they're out. Here's an example. When Jesus gets hard on the Pharisees, the tax collectors like to hang out, right? When Jesus is, you know, does Matthew chapter 23, the woes to the Pharisees, I'm sure that some of the tax collectors are standing around like, finally someone's ripping these guys. You ever been in that position where, you know, you come to a Sunday morning and maybe a preacher is, is finally preaching a sermon that you're like, I wish this was preached every week because my home group, there's so many of them, you know? And then the next week, if he says something that's cutting to the heart, you're like, yeah, I don't really even like this church. That's what happens here in the difference between the crowds and the disciples. And Jesus is giving a, a dear warning. He's saying this, it is entirely possible to live your life as a member of the crowd and never truly submit and surrender to the lordship of King Jesus. That's scary. Because here's the thing, we all start in the crowd, but woe to us if we stay there forever. And I would say the most dangerous thing we could ever do is convince ourselves that we're kneeling at the feet of Jesus while he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, when in reality we are sitting in the stands basically trying to make decisions on what we're going to apply and what we're not. Now you might be thinking, how, Court? Like, how, how could anyone do that? Here's what I'll say. Religion is tantalizing. It's more tantalizing than you could ever believe. When I say the word religion, most of us repulse, but the truth is that's a default motive of our heart. It is... So tantalizing to embrace religion. Why? Because here's what religion is. It calls us to morality, and it doesn't mention repentance. So it just says, hey, you need to be more like God. You need to be more like God. You need to be more like God. We're like, okay, I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, like a good American, and I'm going to start doing things differently. With no mention of heart change and heartfelt repentance, which is so necessary to ever truly follow God. Religion strives for obedience without dependence. Religion says you can be obedient to God, but you don't have to depend on God for the very obedience that he's, he's bringing forth in you, which is a lie. None of us can really bear forth the fruit of repentance without God's very help. It offers the benefits of the king, kingdom without a true relationship with the king. So it says, hey, you get, to, you get to experience all these awesome things that are listed out, but you don't really have to be near to the king himself. And so at the, at the root of religion is this idea that we get to have everything that King Jesus is offering, but that Jesus is going to stay in his lane and let us rule our own portion of it. And I think that what Matthew's getting at here by giving us these two different groups of people is he's giving us a warning before we even start the sermon to say, hey, take a moment to self-examine and say, where do I really sit before Jesus even starts talking? Now, I know you're probably thinking, listen, Court, I'm a pretty good person. What do you want from me? Like, I, I give, I attend church when I can. I try to do my best to do right by other people. Why does it always seem like God's just saying more, 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 more from me? You're asking me to give more than I'm capable of giving. Okay. So I get that inclination, right? I, I really do. And I want to say this. 
rather than try to dodge it. Yes, the gospel calls us to give our whole selves over to God, and there's no way of getting around that. So how do we move forward even though we feel like, wow, that's a humongous step? Well, here's what I'll say. We can move forward because in order for us to be made worthy citizens of the kingdom he's offering to us, there is no other way other than for him to do a wholesale change. There's no other way. My wife and I, we love, uh, well, let me rephrase this. My wife loves Joanna Gaines. Loves her. I mean, she, you know, she, she enjoys all of her books. You know, she has like a coffee mug that talks about her in some way. I don't know. She loves her. L- loved uh, Fixer Upper. And so for a long time, we watched that in our house. You know, anytime that I couldn't take over with sports, she had already taken over with HGTV. And I think like the going rule in our house is like whoever gets the TV kind of gets to master it and then, and then until they leave and like use the restroom, then he change it real quick, whatever it may be. But she loved Fixer Upper. Uh, and if you ever watch this show, it's they go in and, and they're based out of Waco and they kind of go into these houses and they renovate uh, they legitimately take these kind of broken down, dilapidated houses, and they choose three of them. They get a couple, and they say, hey, which one do you like the most, the bones of the house? And we're going to do a, a great job of renovating it for you. We're going to bring you back in, then we're going to show you all the things that we've done. And they always do this just amazing job. One of my favorite things that happens in the show, and I don't know if it's just because I like, you know, the tension of it, is whenever they go into these houses, and it's way worse than they expected it to be whenever they first got it. You know what I'm talking about? It's like they walk in, they're like, I got all these great plans, and then, you know, they open up a closet they didn't know existed, and, like, there's no foundation. They're like, uh, this is bad. Or there's, like, rot everywhere, you know, and, like, we're going to have to do, and you see, like, Chip Gaines, who ends up having to just basically demolish the house and rebuild it. And Joanna's coming in, she's saying, here's all the things we're going to do and all this stuff, and he's just kind of, like, sweating and bleeding, he's like, okay, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And he's having to basically build this whole house from scratch. Here's the thing. No one enters into Christianity and sanctification and walks into it and says, you know what? When they start really realizing their own soul, they start looking around and go, it's really not that bad in here. Like, you know what? I'm actually pretty good. Well, I think I'm pretty holy. Like, Jesus is not going to have to do much. It's really just a few tweaks here and there. We'll be all right. No one who's honest experiences it that way. Walking with Jesus is when That moment when that closet is opened and the Lord says, look all that's here that you didn't even know was here. And you think, how in the world is this house ever going to be built? And then Jesus, the great carpenter, says, we're going to do a wholesale renovation in this place. That's discipleship. So when you feel like, man, God is continuing to ask and require more and more and more of me, I want to say he probably is. And here's why. Because he loves you enough not to leave the closet closed and basically to have a rotting foundation the rest of your life. Jesus is after our heart. And so here's the thing. The way to our heart is this, that we would feel the weight of true holiness and righteousness. We need to feel the weight of what it means to be righteous before God. So that when we feel that, we will say, just like I said earlier, this is far too much for me. That's the first and initial step for you to really know why Jesus and the cross is so necessary. If you never come to the end of your own rope and say, you know what, I can't live this way, you'll never really ever be able to be a disciple. Because the initial step to being a Christian is saying, I can't do this. So that you know why Christ had to come and die and say, I did it for you. Are you you walking with me on this? 
This is why Mount Sinai, the giving of the law, is juxtaposed against the Sermon on the Mount, because the Sermon on the Mount is going to be Jesus saying, listen, you thought it was hard just not to murder. What if I tell you that even when you're angry in your heart, you've already murdered them? And you're like, oh, no. Like, you thought the law was hard. You read the Ten Commandments, you're like, geez, buzzkill. Wait till Jesus starts. He's going to up the ante. He says, listen, you know the whole adultery talk? If you even lust with your heart, you've already committed adultery. Oh. And he doesn't stop. He just keeps chopping away at the walls of your house. Like the little house that you thought you built, that you thought looked beautiful, Jesus comes in like the mighty inspector and says, "Uh, it's all bad, it's all gotta go. And why would he do that? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Until we are confronted with the weight of what it means to be truly holy, we will always be half in, half out of our discipleship, skeptical about Jesus. Why do I really have to do that? And eventually, we'll end up trusting our own way rather than God himself. And I think it's important to make mention of this. The gospel of the kingdom is not that Jesus is constantly requiring more of us, but that Jesus already fulfilled everything that was required of us and more. So when you feel that weight of requirement to discipleship, here's what Jesus is entering in with you. He's saying, you feel the weight, give it to me, and I'll give you my burden. My burden is easy and light. You're feeling a burden that I'm willing to take and I've taken for you. So he's offering this exchange, but the first thing he has to do is convince you that it's actually as heavy as it is. See, many of us are walking around with these burdens in life, and we're looking at each other and saying, it's not that bad, even though our ankles are bleeding. We have these major burdens on our back. We're weary and tired, and we're looking around, and because we've been taught this way, maybe from childhood, everybody's asking how you are, and you walked in here this morning saying, I'm great. Things are good, you know. It's like your house is on fire and people are like, do you want me to call the fire department? No, we got this small fire, no big deal. It's actually a pit in the back. You want to warm up? And that's our lives. Jesus is saying, rather than pretending like that, why don't you offer me that brokenness and I'll offer you my wholeness? It's a great exchange. And it's this kind of lavish love that motivates wholehearted discipleship. And then finally, why do I think Jesus does this? Well, I think... Jesus' call here is more loving than anything. It's not rigid, it's not hateful, it's loving. And here's why. Because if we stay in the crowds, if spectatorship is where we stay forever, deception leads to destruction. If we stay spectating but we never actually enter into discipleship, it eventually leads to destruction. How do I know that? Well, what we have here in Matthew chapter five is where the crowds begin. And the crowds begin by being interested to listen to what Jesus has to say. But if you have your Bible, turn with me in Matthew 27. Let's see where the crowds end up. Matthew chapter 27, I'm going to read verses 15 through 23. So where we started, the crowds are willing to hear, they're willing to listen, they're marveled, they're astonished by Jesus' power, they're astonished by Jesus' grace, his mercy. But now we get verse 15. This is after Jesus is arrested. It says this. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, 
Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? What you have here is a moment in time where at the Feast of Passover, the governor, in his custom, would always release a prisoner at the Feast of Passover. Now, that's incredible if you think about it, because the Passover is really talking about redemption. And, and even this Roman governor was giving this idea of redemption off uh, to the children of Israel. So he says, we always release a prisoner. Here's what I got. I got Jesus over here who, who will be stood up beaten and mocked and scorned with a crown of thorns. They put a purple robe on him that he's bleeding. They stand him up to make a mockery of him. And then they put Barabbas, who is this notorious criminal who had already murdered people and who had tried to start an insurrection against Rome. That's what he's in prison for. And they stand him up against each other. And so the the governor, Pilate, says this, uh, which one do you want me to release? Now watch the crowds here. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Verse 19, besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, that's Pilate's wife, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. I love that Matthew includes that. For some reason, Pilate's wife has a dream that Jesus is a righteous man and that what they're doing to him is wrong. And just so everyone will know that no one is not guilty in accusing Jesus the criminal, the wife comes and says, don't do this, and Pilate ends up doing it anyway. Everyone's guilty here. Let's watch verse 20, the crowds. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. And so the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to him, okay. He's kind of shocked here because he's thinking, surely they won't do this. Uh, He says, okay, then what do you want me to do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Now, I think what he's doing here is kind of leveraging. All right, fine, I'll release Barabbas. But, but you guys don't really want to kill this guy, do you? Watch what they say. They all said, Matthew says, they all said, let him be crucified. And Pilate says, why, what evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So where the crowds started to where the crowds ended is a great devolution, isn't it? They start by listening to Jesus. They love what he's saying. And by the end of it, they're all crying out, crucify him. Why? Because when you are deceived, deception will lead to destruction. And the crowds had been deceived long enough that following Jesus, just so that they can basically buffet what he says and gain his benefits, they had been deceived into believing they were real followers, but in actuality, they weren't. That when the going got tough, they were moved. So why is it so tempting to be a part of the crowd? I think that's an important question for us to answer this morning. If we know this, why is it so tempting to kind of play that half-in, half-out game? I think that we spend our lives teetering in the crowd because deep down, we all want the kingdom, but few of us want the king. We all want the kingdom, but few of us want the king. Why? Why? I think we all want the kingdom because when I, if I were to ask you right now, do you want peace in your life? We'd all, by and large, unless you're a masochist, you would say yes. If I said, do you want joy in your life? Yes. Do you want hope? Do you want meaning? Do you want purpose? Do you want abundance? Yes, yes, yes. I want all of those things. But if I said, do you want a king that you have to submit to in order to get all those things? Seven steps back, or seven steps forward, one step back. Do you want to be under authority? Another step back. Do you want to have someone who gets to call all the shots in your life? They're like, okay, I already have a wife. I'll take one more step back. Right? 
We don't like the idea of having to acquiesce to anyone else's authority but our own. And check this out. You can see this in your own life, right? Like, like hear me on this. If you're already trying to check out and say, oh, that's not me. Well, let's really press into that, though. Uh, some of you, you will re- refuse to ride with other people to events. Why do you do that? Anybody have that, for, that, that feeling? Like, we're all going to go out to eat, and you're like, oh, we'll drive our own car. Anybody? Or, hey, we're going to go, big, big family, right? We're all going to have a family reunion. We're going down to Galveston for the weekend. You're like, oh, we'll drive our own car. But we got plenty of space for you. No, it's okay. I got, I, got, I got to work late. You don't have to work late. Why do you do that? Well, duh, you want to leave when you want to leave. When things get squirrely, you're gone. When you get uncomfortable, you're done. But if you ride with someone else, guess what? You are at their behest. So you're like, hey, you ready to go? They're like, no, we're having a great time. You're like sweating with anxiety. Like, oh, we're, oh yeah, having a great time. They're like, hey, we're going to go. Hey, we're not only going to go here to dinner, but we're going to go out and have drinks afterwards. You're like, oh, really? That's great. I'm going to Uber, right? You are out. You want to leave on your own terms. How about this one? How many of you have trouble committing to plans? Like someone says, hey, we're going to do this thing a few months from now for my birthday. You want to go? You're like, ooh, I'll check my calendar. A couple weeks later, you want to go? Oh, I don't know, you know, just really need to talk it over with the wife. How many of you, when you had your first child, you're like, they're the best. They're my built-in excuse. I say yes to everything and then no because they're always sick. It's weird. It's like, oh, sorry. (laughs) They're sick. I'm sick. We're all sick. My kid's crying, my kid's sleepy, my kid's tired, my kid's anxious, my kid's, you know, rambunctious. He's way too sleepy or he's way too hyper. It doesn't matter because I'm not coming. (laughs) Right? You want to be able to do what you want to do when the time comes for you to do it. And basically, committing to something for you doesn't give you the autonomy to do so. Some of us, we struggle with church membership. Why? Why? Because we love the idea of the benefits of being a part of a community until someone tells you that, hey, you will be held to an account and we're actually going to call you to consider contributing. Whoa, who are you in my life? It's like you love being a part of the community when there's benefits of, oh, my home group loves me. They care about me. These things are great. Like, man, would you consider putting a meal train together? Whoa, I got a busy life, man. Or someone says, man, we haven't seen you in home group for a long time. We'd love for you to be there. Whoa, this is on my terms right? Because in the end, we want to be able to set the standard for life for ourselves. And sometimes the mantra of our life becomes having our cake, eating it too. That's more of the mantra of our life than what Jesus calls us to. I say that to say, the reason that living in the crowds is so tantalizing is because it already tickles the fancy of our religious heart. We live in a world averse to accountability because deep down in our firstborn nature, we want what our first parents wanted. We want Eden without the God of Eden. What was Satan's temptation? He said, why can't you eat of this fruit? Well, God said we couldn't eat it. Well, God's doing that because he doesn't want you to be like him because if you were like him, you wouldn't need him anymore. And it says that Eve says, that is logical. I like all of this without him. The very first mutiny that ever existed was a coup on the throne of the universe from our first parents. And here's the thing, we're all bent this way. We just don't recognize it. Now, what was God's response to that mutiny? Jesus. Now think about this. If you were and I were God, 
I promise you, depending upon many of our dispositions, it would all be some semblance of, we're done with this. I mean, the most calm among us, if that were to happen to you, you'd be like, I'm done with these humans. Do a whole start over, right? Like you look at the flood and you're like, that's a little overreaction. Not really. I've seen some of you drive. (laughs) It's not. God's response to this kind of mutiny is Jesus. So Jesus isn't willing to offer the kingdom on our terms, but he is willing to constantly reveal why he is a worthy king for your submission. Check this out. Our king, unlike earthly kings, he doesn't just call for us to die for him. He shows us what it looks like to die for the ones you love. Think about this. Our king says, surely a kingdom is only going to be powerful if the citizens of the kingdom are willing to die for the kingdom, but I'll show you what it looks like and I'll die first. That's what our king did. Our king doesn't just bark orders. He shows us what it looks like to take guidance from a loving father. Jesus never gave commands that he himself was not first willing to obey from the father. Our king doesn't tax us and make us build his palace for him. He gives to us and then he says, I'll prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there's many mansions. Our king doesn't exert his power from above, but he, he comes down, condescends, lives his life on earth, and then right before he dies, he kneels down at the disciples' feet and he washes their feet. Peter, knowing this is an absolute travesty, says, I, I, I refuse to let you wash my feet. He says, you have to let me do this for you or you'll have no part in me. And that's where Peter does the whole, okay, wash my head, my hands, everything. I just wanna have a part with you, right? Check this one out. Our king does not create subjects through force. He adopts sons and daughters through love. God's response to this this inclination in us to be a part of the crowds is not to force us down on our knees in submission. It's a call. It's a wooing. It's a pursuit. It's a love. It's a constant drawing of our hearts back into the loving arms of a father. God's response is not an exerting, domineering, you will be my subjects. It's you are my sons and daughters and I love you. And I'm a worthy king. So he's calling us. Jesus doesn't require perfection. He calls for devotion and there's a difference. Jesus doesn't require perfection. He calls for devotion. You see, Jesus took care of the perfection for us. But what he calls to us, he says, I want your heart. He says, listen, I know that you're gonna stumble a lot in your following of me. Think about some of the disciples like Peter and and Jesus' love for them. Like Peter in one moment is like, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Six verses later, Jesus is having to rebuke him and say, get behind me, Satan, because he's trying to tell Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. I mean, that was a bad counseling moment from Peter to Jesus. First of all, don't try to counsel Jesus. But second of all, like, talk about the worst possible counsel. Hey, the cross isn't really necessary. That's exactly what Satan had said like a few chapters earlier. And what is Jesus' response to Peter? He loves him, loves Peter. At the cross, I always find this baffling that right before Jesus goes to the cross, he looks at Peter and says, Jesus, I've been, or he says, Peter, I've been praying for you because Satan asked to sift you like wheat. But when you return, encourage the brothers. Jesus had been praying for Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane? That makes zero sense to me. I'll tell you, in our worst times of our lives, do you know what we're not doing? Considering our neighbors. We're on our knees crying out to God for help, and I don't begrudge any of you for doing it, but our king, in the worst moments of his life, was crying out for his disciples. 
And so what does he call from us? He calls us to devotion. And so this morning I wanna ask you, do we trust that Jesus is a king worthy of our surrender? Do we trust that he's a king worthy of our submission? I would propose to you this morning that Jesus is worthy of all of that and more. And I wanna close with this one thought. The secret to the kingdom of God is this. As beautiful, as wonderful, as desirable as the kingdom of God is and will be, it pales in comparison to what it means to love the king himself. The true treasure of the kingdom is not the kingdom, it's the king. So when Jesus calls us to himself and requires devotion, he's not trying to rob you, he's offering you the real thing. And so this morning, my prayer is that we'd be called out of the crowd, we'd be called to devotion, and that we'd be called to greater submission to King Jesus. Because listen to me, submission to King Jesus means real joy, life, peace, and freedom. If you'll stand to your feet, I want to pray for us. Father, I'm I want to confess to you, admit to you that there are times where I find my heart's trying to pull and draw me back into spectatorship. There are times, Lord, where my heart tries to pull me back to buffet what truths I want to apply because my firstborn nature is not bent toward submission. My my firstborn nature, Lord, is not bent toward obedience. And so I ask for your forgiveness, Lord. Just, Holy Spirit, would you help to open our hands with this tight grip that we have on our own lives? And for those of us who may be teetering in that moment, I ask God, would you call us out of the crowd and into discipleship? Help us to respond to that call, Lord. We trust you. We love you. And for those who are struggling with that, not sure, God, we just pray you give them courage and peace that you're a worthy king. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.